Matthew chapter 4, in verse 1 it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. In this section we read of the king's temptation. And Matthew gives us the circumstances of his temptation in verses 1 and 2, and then the character of that temptation in verses 3 through 10, and then the consequences of the testing in verse 11. Satan is allowed to test Jesus, and we see that the test is both physical and spiritual. We read about the Holy Spirit and the wilderness and the devil and fasting and hunger and the test is familiar. Satan's consistent appeal is for us to doubt God's provision in verses 1 through 4. To doubt God's protection in verses 5 through 7. And to doubt God's promises in verses 8 through 10. And of course, the test is threefold, and it corresponds to the tactics that Satan employed against Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the scriptures remind us that, again, after great blessing, there will often be great trial. You'll remember that after Israel came out of Egypt, they were met by Amalek in chapter 17, verse 8. And Amalek is a type and a picture of sin. In other words, when we do something right, we're often tested. And this is also true for the Christian. After great 
blessing, we can sometimes experience great trial. And that might be your experience. And it's the normative experience. Well, wait a minute. Hey, it's, it's Thanksgiving and I'm going to volunteer at the, at the Denver Rescue Mission or I'm going to help put together baskets or I'm going to do something right. Well, guess what? When you do something right, there's often something greatly difficult that will happen. The moment you decide for Jesus... That's when the conflict with Satan begins. It was Erwin Lutzer who said, temptation is not sin. Temptation is a call to battle. Lutzer also wrote, each temptation leaves us better or worse. Neutrality is impossible, he writes. The Lord tests. Satan tempts. And you might be asking the question, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between a test and a temptation? A test determines what's inside of us. A temptation is a solicitation to evil. A temptation is an invitation to act out sin. The Lord God never invites anyone to sin. Satan always invites everyone to sin. The Lord God never invites anyone to sin. The devil gratifies. God satisfies. Someone has said that our flesh is the worm on the devil's hook. No wonder James wrote in chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Temptation has its source, not in the outer lure, but in the thing that is desired. I recall the story of a little boy who was staring at a bowl of apples. And as his eyes turned to those apples, the store owner said, son, what are you doing? Are you trying to steal one of those apples? And the kid said, no, sir. I'm trying not to. (laughs) And therein is the difference. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything except temptation. You see, for the unbeliever and the make-believer, temptation simply is a reminder, not if I'm going to give in, but when am I going to give in? And that's why for the Christian, for the person who loves the Lord, James will later write in chapter 4, in verse 7, he'll say, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Most people want to be delivered from temptation, but they like to keep in touch. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, it says, You shall remember the Lord your God. How he led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments or not. Satan desires to make us 
ignorant of God's will or impatient with God's will or to act independently of God's will, or to indict our heart through the accusations of our heart concerning God's will. And remember, in the earlier part of Matthew, the revelation of God has taken place. It is God's will that Jesus is the Messiah. It is God's will that Jesus is the King. And so look at the lust of the flesh, the temptation to doubt God's provision. Look again at verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when the text says Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil... It should cause each and every one of you to pause at least for a moment and to ask a question of the text. Why would the Spirit of God lead the Son of God into such a difficult situation? And I know that you've asked it about yourself. Lord, why would you do this? Why would you bring me to this place? I'm reminded of the story of the person who was getting ready to, he's he's driving past Dunkin' Donuts and he goes, Lord, if you don't want me to have a, if you don't want me to have a donut this morning, just make sure there's no parking space right in front of Dunkin' Donuts. And so he goes around once and he goes around twice and he goes around three times and there the fourth time the parking space opens up. Why would the Spirit of God lead the Son of God into such a difficult circumstance? You'll remember in the Old Testament that Saul was made king of Israel. And then he failed. Before a king can rule others, he has to prove that he can rule himself. And Jesus is embarking on his ministry. And if he is going to invite people to trust the Lord, believe the Lord, rely upon the Lord, there's going to be a period of testing and examination in his own life. And it shouldn't come as a shock and as a surprise to you that you also will experience that kind of testing. It says in verse 2, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Afterward, he was hungry. And that shouldn't shock you either. Raise your hand if you've gone without food for a whole day. Keep it up if you've gone without food for seven days. Keep it up if you've gone without food for 14 days. Keep it up if you've gone without food for 21 days. Well, I don't see any hands up. Oh, there's one. Oh, you were in a coma in the hospital. That doesn't count. <laughs> After 30 days, the tissue in your body begins to break down and you absorb the muscle in your own body. You begin to die. And you'll remember that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, how many years? 40 years, and then there's a test. Noah's flood, 40 days and 40 nights, and then a test. 
Jonah preaches for 40 days and 40 nights and then a test. The children wander for 40 years. Jesus fasts for 40 days. Both spend time in the wilderness. Both experience a testing. Both are experiencing a preparation for a future mission. It says, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Before we look at that text, I just want to remind you of what we've already read in chapter 13, verse 17. Read it for yourself. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father has already declared that he is the Son. So when Satan says, If you're the Son of God... We can think of this in one of two ways. Satan is either saying, since you are the son of God, or he is suggesting that if he is in fact the son of God, and if he is on, in fact acting according to God's will and according to God's plan, it doesn't make sense that he should suffer deprivation. And this becomes one of the things that we know in each one of our our lives that Satan targets the mind. His weapon lies. For what purpose? To make us ignorant of God's will. Satan targets the body. His weapon Suffering for what purpose? To make us impatient with God's will. He says, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. By the way, is it a sin to be hungry? No. But can you satisfy your hunger in such a way that you dishonor God? Yeah, you know what that's called. It's called gluttony. Is it a sin to be thirsty? But can you satisfy that thirst in such a way that you dishonor God? Is it a sin to be sexually attracted to a person? No. But can you act on that in such a way that it dishonors God? And you see, this is the temptation. This is the test. Why in the world would God allow the Messiah to go hungry? The real test is that Satan wants Christians to believe that God is unfair or unkind or limits the things that we need. And this is the same tactic that Satan took with Eve in the Garden of Eden. When he basically said to her, half not God said concerning a particular thing. In other words, Satan led Eve with the impression that that she was going to lose out or that she was going to miss out. Satan's suggestion, the Lord must not really love you because if he really loved you, he would take better care of you. And so the test is, does God want to provide for you and the right answer is the bible has already revealed that god wants to make a provision but the challenge becomes will you accept his provision on his terms what is the test 
Well, for Jesus to exercise his divine powers outside of the will of God would mean to spell defeat because in John's gospel, we learn that Jesus did always those things that pleases his father in John chapter eight, verse 29. And so the invitation here is to exercise his deity in order to satisfy his humanity. If you're the son of God, The Father in heaven has already declared that he is the Son of God. And so Jesus is faced with this dilemma. Am I going to get what I need on my terms? Or am I going to wait for God to make that provision for me? And for many of you, it's hard for you to say, well, I guess I'm not going to eat unless the Lord wants me to. I guess I'm not going to drink unless the Lord wants me to. But the Bible has already said that the Lord will make a provision for you. He will make a provision for you. He will make a provision for you. And so in verse 4 it says, but he answered and said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How does Jesus respond to the temptation? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. Now, I know for many of you who every January you make the commitment, I am going to read through the Bible and you get through Genesis and it's really interesting and you get through Exodus and it's pretty exciting. And then you start to sort of hit a wall at Leviticus and by the time you get to Deuteronomy, you're done. But the Lord is aware That each and every section has an important contribution to make. And the context is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 1 through 6. And if you have a Bible you can turn there. If you don't just listen. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 1 it says. Every commandment which I command you today. You must be careful to observe. That you may live and multiply. And go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. The text goes on and says. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not so he humbled you he allowed you to go hungry And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, that he might make you to know that man shall not live by bread alone. And Jesus has wandered through the wilderness. And day one has gone by, and day five has gone by, and day 10 has gone by, and day 20 has gone by, and day 30 has gone by, and his stomach is starting to collapse on its own self, and every particle in his body is absolutely gone, and he is remembering Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that you might know that man shall not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord the Lord understands that there is a physical reality and that there is a spiritual reality and the Lord will often test us 
In the ordinary things of life, like eating and drinking and personal relationships. Lord, I don't want to be alone. It's it's good that a man not be alone. Lord, I want a companion. It's not wrong for you to want a companion. Well, then why did the Lord bring this hunkalicious man into my life who doesn't know Jesus? (laughs) He's everything that a, a girl could ever want. It's not wrong for you to want to have companionship and it's not wrong for you to want to have relationship. Jesus allowed the word of God to be his authority to inform his thinking and inform his living. Jesus has the word of God hidden in his heart, like it says in Psalm uh, 119, verse 11, so that he could quote it accurately and apply it specifically to his circumstances. And we see that the word of God will cut the scales of the serpent. The inspired word of God is our defense against Satan's attacks. And we see the lust of the eyes, the temptation to doubt God's protection. Look in verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. I don't have the image, and I wish I would have had James or Connie get it. But if you can imagine the temple mount, and you're looking at the temple mount... In front of the Temple Mount, there is a, a large wall. And on the Temple Mount, there is a, a valley that plunges right in front of the temple. It's called the Valley of Kidron. And if you go to the highest part of the wall on the temple and you go to the lowest part where the Kindred Valley plunges, that's the pinnacle. And Jesus is on this particular place. And once again, Satan questions the identity of Jesus if you're the son of God and the faith of Jesus. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for if you do, God will protect you. Jesus quotes the Bible. And so Satan quotes the Bible. Does that shock you? You might have thought, well, I thought that the, that the Bible was a sacred book. It is. I thought it was a holy book. It is. I thought it was the very word of God. It is. I thought it reveals the very will of God. It does. Does it shock you that Satan will take it and speak it, but he will twist it and distort it? He says he's given angels charge over you. Satan dares Jesus to put the promises of God to the test. To put God's protection to the test, like some of you. Okay, God, if you're really there, God, if you're there, make the Broncos win this afternoon. (laughs) Tests take different forms, have different satisfactions. Satan quotes, or rather, misquotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. He basically says, if you really believe in God's care 
If you really believe in God's protection, let's play a game. We're going to call it touched by an angel or, or caught by an angel. You throw yourself out and the angels will supernaturally provide for you. But Satan strategically omits an all-important part of the verse. Because in Psalm 91 verse 11 it says, In all your ways, if you walk in all your ways, part of the point that is being made is what is actually being promised. The Lord promises his protection when we keep his ways. And this is the challenge. Satan is a mastermind of adding to the scripture or subtracting from the scripture or twisting the scripture. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, he can twist the Bible and give carnal Christians biblical reason to support their foolish action. Beware of taking promises out of their context or claiming promises when you haven't met the conditions to do something without the Bible's authority is sin. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin, it says in Romans chapter 14, verse 23. This is to tempt God, to dare him, to intervene and rescue us when we are in trouble. Deliberate disobedience is an invitation for chastening, unquote. In other words, if you go, well, Lord, if you're really there... And if you really care, you'll do this, or you'll do that, or you'll do this, and you'll do that. The first temptation relates to Christ's person. The second temptation relates to Christ's trust in God. Some of you have privately said to me, I have problems trusting It's the common experience of almost every single human being. And God invites you to trust him. Satan invites Jesus to presume upon God's mercy. God's power is employed and motivated by God's love and God's goodness. And this is the difference between a divine miracle and sorcery. The devil is in fact inviting Jesus to ask God to deliver him from a peril of his own making. You would never do that, right? You would never ever ask God to deliver you from something that you got yourself messed up with. Has the Satan ever said to you, you got yourself in this jam. And I'm going to cry out to God to get me out of the jam. You know what is really interesting to me? Is God in his grace and his mercy will sometimes supernaturally, even though you have been a complete idiot and fool, is that he loves you so much. He cares for you so much that he will intervene in your life. But is the Lord obligated to make the consequences of your sin go away? Is it right for you to pray, Lord, I've sown these seeds of disobedience and rebellion, and now it's up to you to kill the crop? (laughs) Knowing that what a person sows, that also they will reap. 
And so Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. So how do we deal with Satan? We submit to God. We resist the devil. How do we deal with Satan? We submit to God. We resist the devil and we remind him of what the Bible says. How do we deal with Satan's false reasoning? We appreciate the true reasoning that's given to us in the scriptures. Satan is clever. Satan will bring giants to mock God and challenge the people of God. And we will have to find smooth stones in God's stream to bring down the giants. And you'll find them in God's word. You'll find the promises in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And look again what it says, the pride of life, the temptation to doubt God's promises. Look again in verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The first temptation related to Christ's person. The second temptation related to his trust in God. This third temptation relates to Christ's work. Remember what I said to you that Satan's goal is to get you to either doubt, disrespect, undermine, refuse to understand God's will. Look at what Satan is doing. Oh, it's God's will that you be a king. Well, then be a king. Become a king. Jesus comes to lay the foundation of an, of an everlasting kingdom. Is Jesus the king? He is. The first Adam lost his position and power by yielding to temptation and sin. And the last Adam comes back to get back what Adam lost by devotion to the Father and yielding to the Father's will in obedience to the death on a cross. And as a result of that obedience, the Father would bring the kingdom of this world into the care and the control of Christ. And so the temptation is will you be a king the way God wants you to be a king? Will you embrace your kingdom according to God's plan and God's purpose? So what is Satan offering? He's offering Jesus an easy way to be a king. Can you imagine you can have a king and you don't have to be beaten and you don't have to be imprisoned and you don't have to be crucified. He's offering Jesus a kingdom without a cross. The question that scholars ask is, is the offer legitimate? The Bible says that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. The Bible says that he is the prince of the power of the air. In John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 30, it says, I'll no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. And he has nothing in me. 
Satan is permitted a certain amount of control in at least a few governments on this planet. I'm going to suggest to you that he is offered at least some control of the governments of this world. And according to Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, God has promised the kingdoms of this earth as an inheritance to his son. But in order to obtain this inheritance, Jesus must suffer. And Jesus will die. And Jesus will submit to a death on the cross. And Satan invites Jesus to wear a crown of gold instead of a crown of thorns. And sit on a majestic throne instead of hanging from a tree. And you're probably wondering, well, what's God's will for my life? And what does God want for me and from me? And the Lord wants you to experience his love and to experience his forgiveness and to experience hope and to experience his grace and to experience his mercy and to experience eternal life. But you won't experience it without grace and without the gospel. And without Christ. Satan invites Jesus to fulfill God's plan. Absent the pain. Absent the sorrow. Absent the humiliation. And sometimes that's exactly what we want. And Satan will act on that. Well I want to fulfill God's plan and purpose. But I don't want pain in my life. And I don't want sorrow in my life. And I don't want humiliation in my life. And so Satan will gladly show up and say. I'll make that pain go away. I'll make that sorrow go away. I'll make that humiliation go away. The cost, simply acknowledge Satan's ability to make good on his promises. And worship him. And that's exactly what we do. Every single time when we say God's plan isn't the plan for me. God's promises isn't the promise for me. God's protections aren't the protections for me. But Jesus, look what it says in verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. Because only the word of God, only the word of God can reveal Satan's lies and defeat him. And you can't, I hope you understand this by now, you can't reason with Satan. We get that from the very opening of the book of Genesis when Eve tries to reason with Satan. Where is that going to take you? It's going to take you nowhere fast. Human wisdom can't serve as an adequate defense against Satan's schemes. Does it shock you? Does it surprise you? Does it embarrass you? Are you a little bit put off if I say to you, he's smarter than you are? I know some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know about that. You know what? 
human wisdom cannot serve as an adequate defense against Satan's schemes. And so what does the Lord give us? He gives us his word. He gives us his grace. He gives us the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us and an interceding son, according to the book of Hebrews, in heaven. Do you realize that when you were sleeping last night, Jesus was praying for you? Every moment of every moment of your existence, Jesus is interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's pleading with the Father. He's reminding us that God, who has begun the work, is going to see it to the end. And we worship what we serve, and we serve what we worship. And if we serve ourselves, we worship ourselves. If we serve human wisdom, if we serve human passion, if we serve money, if we serve family, if we serve government, if we serve philosophy, if we serve science, each and every one of these can solicit you to act apart from God's will. In God's plan. And the Bible says that one day in the future, Satan will hand over the kingdoms of this world to the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13. But Jesus will come, Jesus will come, Jesus will come, and he will take these kingdoms from him. According to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, he will set up his kingdom and he will establish his rule. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus will be king and he will be king on God's terms and he will be king in your life on God's terms. That is a hallelujah. And look what it says in verse 11. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The devil left him. Forever? No, he's going to show up again. Just like in your circumstance. Lord! Whoo, I dodged a bullet that time. Does that mean that Satan will never show up and never solicit ever again? He's like those phone solicitors that no matter, take me off the list. Take me off the list. And then they call back, don't they? And they call again. And that's exactly what Satan does. And this is why we study and we learn God's word. This is why... Again, I'm so glad you're here and I'm so glad we get to open up our Bibles. But the truth is, if you don't open your Bible on Monday and if you don't open your Bible on Tuesday and if you don't open your Bible on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, the chances are you're going to get in trouble. And this is why memorizing the word of God is so important. This is why it says in Psalm 119, verse 11, your word I've treasured in my heart so that I won't sin against you. Psalm 37, 31, the law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The implication being the instructions on how to go forward in this difficult circumstance 
is found inside of me. And that's why I do what I do. And I'm constantly asking the question. When people ask me questions about things, I, I'll, the very first thing that I'll say is, what does the Bible say about this? We're to meditate on God's word. And we're to congregate with one another. The spirit of God will not be able to bring to your remembrance if nothing's there. And so you might be thinking, I can see how Genesis can apply to practically, and I can see how Exodus could apply and and Leviticus could apply, but what help could, oh, right, Deuteronomy, Matthew chapter 4, yes, Jesus uses Deuteronomy in order to defeat the devil. Again, some people who manage to overcome temptation seem to leave Satan their forwarding address. Hey, you can find me here. John Owen offered Christians this advice. He was a Puritan. Let us learn more about the power of temptation in order to avoid it. He wrote, watch and pray. This injunction from our Lord implies that we should maintain a clear, abiding apprehension of the great danger we face if we enter into temptation. If one is always aware of the great danger, one will stand guard. And that's when you're likely to stand guard. When you say, wait a minute, I'm under attack here. By the way, read it again in verse 11. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. What do you suppose those angels did? What do you suppose they did? How did they minister to Jesus? Did they comfort Jesus with the Father's love or strengthen Jesus with a glimpse into the future? Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, and so it is written, the first Adam became a living being and the last Adam became a spirit-giving or a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. Adam was tempted in a beautiful garden. Jesus in a lonely wilderness. Adam was tempted when he was strong and fit and healthy. Jesus was hurt and broken and empty and hungry. Adam was the king of the old creation and Jesus is the king of the the new spiritual creation. Adam sinned and lost his dominion. Christ obeyed and regained what Adam lost and more. You. He gained you. What if I suggested to you that God in his grace and his mercy gives this ongoing vision of every man and every woman and there you are and there you are and there you are and there you are. You're not lost. You are found. You are not estranged from God. You are reconciled to God. Adam was defeated and brought death. And Jesus is victorious and he will bring life to everyone who loves him and everyone who trusts him. 
Or did the angels point to the places where David, his father, ran and suffered and experienced God's presence? Both David and Jesus were from Bethlehem. Both were chosen and anointed by God. Both were exiled and persecuted before being crowned. Goliath challenged Israel for 40 days. And Satan attacked Jesus for 40 days. And David used one stone from five to slay the giant. And Jesus used one book, Deuteronomy, from five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. David cut off the giant's head with his sword. And Jesus overcomes the snake with the sword of his spirit, the word of God. You have what you need. You can submit to God. You can resist the devil. You can embrace his word. You can use it when things are really difficult. You know the passage in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. The old saints used to say, ask not how, but trust him still. Ask not when, but wait his will. Simply on his word rely. God shall all your need supply. Satan attacks the mind. His weapon? Lies. His purpose? To make you ignorant of God's will. Your defense? God's inspired word. Satan attacks your body. His weapon? Suffering. Satan attacks our will. His weapon? Pride. Satan attacks our heart and conscience. His weapon, accusation. Because Satan wants to make you impatient with God's will or act independently of God's will or bring an indictment or a challenge or a criticism against God's will. Your defense, the word of God, the grace of God, the spirit of God. Jesus, Jesus in heaven interceding for you. Martin Luther used to say that when the devil showed up knocking at his door, he would send Jesus to go answer. (laughs) It's okay for you to do exactly that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it makes perfect sense that Satan would want to make us ignorant of your will or impatient with your will or to act independently of your will. And for that person who's praying that simple prayer, Lord, what is your will? Lord, I pray that you would reveal it to them, that it's your will for them to know you and to love you. It's your will for them to walk with you. 
It's your will for them to submit to you. It's your will, Lord, to, to, to impart those gifts and stir up those gifts and utilize those gifts to accomplish God's plan. It's God's will for you husbands to love your wives. And it's God's will for you wives to respect your husbands. It's God's will for children to not exacerbate their parents. And it's God's will that the parents think carefully and prayerfully as they minister to their children. Lord, there's so much of your will that we can know. And there's so much that we sometimes become impatient with. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would be men and women who search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And that we utilize the weapons of our warfare, knowing that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would hide James chapter 4, verse 7 in our heart. Submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.